Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. On Commons People this week. Every reshuffle I've ever seen hits a problem somewhere when a minister doesn't want to go somewhere and they want to keep them in the cabinet. It was the night of the plastic knives as Theresa May's reshuffle falls flat. The health secretary during his occupation of her office to keep his job said he won't abandon the ship. Hunt remains and so does the NHS crisis. Uh, this is somebody who's written some really extreme stuff and that really crosses boundaries that are just too far. And what does Theresa May's defence of Toby Young tell us about her judgement? All of this and more on Commons People. Hello and welcome to Commons People, HuffPost UK's politics podcast. With me, Owen Bennett. Yes, I'm back and raring to go for 2018, but not as raring to go as Ned Simons. How are you, Ned? Not bad. How are, uh, you? How are you, Kate? Good, thanks. And Mr Paul War, of course. How are you, Paul? Glad to be back. Excellent. Good. Let's crack on, shall we? Because Theresa May decided to start the new year with a radical shake-up of her government. Well, that was the plan anyway. As it was, there was only a handful of new appointments. Karen Bradley moved from Culture to Northern Ireland, with Matt Hancock replacing her at the Ministry of Fun. Esther McVeigh was appointed Work and Pension Secretary, with David Gork moving to Justice. I hope you're writing this down. Uh, David Liddington became the Cabinet Office Minister, replacing Damien Green. Justin Greening quit the Cabinet after refusing to be moved from Education with Damien Hines replacing her. Here's Ian Duncan-Smith on the non-shuffle. Expectations were far too high on the run-in because I always think it was going to be a moderate reshuffle because there's only two or three jobs needed changing. Every reshuffle I've ever seen hits a problem somewhere when a minister doesn't want to go somewhere and they want to keep them in the cabinet. Summing it up nicely there. Um, now, despite May's claim that her government reflected the UK, the number of female cabinet ministers remains unchanged, 6 out of 23. The number of non-white cabinet ministers also remains the same, just 1 out of 23. His new party chairman, Brandon Lewis... Let start again... His new party chairman, Brandon Lewis, defending the reshuffle kerfuffle. In a reshuffle, by definition, people change, positions change, my role has changed, obviously becoming chairman of the party, which is a great honour to be able to leave forward as a great party with some great people and wonderful volunteers and activists around the country. And what we've also saw, yes, was some really great new colleagues coming into the cabinet with Claire Perry, Caroline Noakes, Damien Hines, some brilliant people, that having more women around the cabinet table than we had before, something I know the Prime Minister was very focused on doing, and we're really blessed. Now, he said more women around the cabinet table there, but uh, that's mainly because he's extended people that attend cabinet as opposed to giving them the top positions. I mean, this was... Uh, <laughs> I mean, I wasn't working on Monday. I was sort of watching this on Twitter, and I thought, I'm so glad I'm at work. This is like a really annoying reshuffle where things weren't happening, other than a sit-in by Jeremy Hunt, apparently. So, Paul, <laughs> talk us through it. You're the man in this kind of stuff. Um, well, I think what the, the interesting thing about what happened on Monday, Tuesday, and even a bit backwash on Wednesday, was it, it disproved this sort of 
growing myth that's appeared in the last few months that somehow the top team around around Theresa May have got the show back on the road since the snap election disaster. So you've got Robbie Gibb brought in from the BBC as a broadcaster. You've got Gavin Barwell, former minister, and you've got these other people around her who are all actually making things, you know, look a lot better. Um, and there isn't really any evidence. Now, this is, a, this is a narrative that's been running since the disasters of conference. There's no evidence, really, on the back of that reshuffle. Was that, that narrative actually, they were putting around themselves, though? Well, obviously, because people were writing up, saying they've steadied the ship, you know. And obviously, before Christmas, the Brexit deal being done, or at least achieved, the first phase of it, you know, was a feather in the PM's cap. But this shows, actually, I think, the sort of weakness of that number 10 operation. And someone pointed out to me, actually... You could argue that the it's the civil service that did all the hard lifting on Brexit before Christmas. And the actual number 10 team, the people around May, actually this shows how they've got blind spots, weak spots. And to be honest, they are still tone deaf on the idea of having a, 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 a cabinet that looks more like modern Britain. And I... There's a good point to be made about people like Robbie Gibb. Yeah, yes, he did work on the daily politics. He did work on things like uh, the Andrew Marr show. But one broadcaster said to me, but he's never worked on a news programme, and it shows. And that's why he had on Monday this weird situation where the government thinks the most important thing to do first is do the Tory party vice chairman. So it's addressing the party rather than the country, which seemed a bit of a blunder. And you've got someone in charge of broadcasting who's worked in radio, not TV. So, you know, you can see why there's muttering in the Tory party that actually the top team isn't all it's cracked up to be. Okay, is there something in the fact that Jeremy Hunt refused to be moved from health, so he got an expanded portfolio. Justin Greening refused to go from education. She was basically made to resign. I mean, what does that tell us? I mean, if you're sort of trying to make out that you are trying to promote strong women and that kind of stuff, it looks, the optics don't look good, does it? Yeah, it's not a good look at all, especially as Justine Greening is the only openly gay female cabinet minister that they've had. Um, and now she's moved swiftly to the naughty corner of the back benches. With uh, Dominic Grieve and Anna Soubry. I mean, there literally is a corner in Parliament where literally Anna Soubry, Nicky Morgan sit and mutter and chunder away and Justin Greening's been there, hasn't she? Gone straight there. Um, she was at Women in Equality's Questions on uh, Thursday morning um, and she was basically putting pressure on Amber Rudd to kind of push through changes that she wanted to make to sex and relationships, sex and relationships education in schools. Um, and... Jeremy Hunt, obviously, was. I heard that he was offered a move to Bayes, so a job swap. Bayes, of course, being the business department. Yeah, so Jeremy Hunt was offered a move there, um, and Greg Clark, allegedly, to health. Um, but Jeremy Hunt seemingly refused to go, um, said it wasn't for him. A captain didn't abandon his ship, which Labour very, very much capitalised on at PMQs on Wednesday. Um, yeah, I mean, the the whole message... It seems pretty unclear what, what their message is out of it. Yeah. Well, Ned, I mean, yeah, talk, talk about Esther McVeigh, though, because Esther McVeigh's come back and she was seen as a real... She seemed to represent the real austerity agenda under Cameron and Osborne. Yeah, I don't know. Obviously, maybe that was a quick decision based on the fact that Greening refused to move, but it showed maybe a lack of planning of what to do. I mean, on Hunt and... Um, the equalities thing as well. Hunt walked into number 10 wearing his NHS badge very proudly. He wasn't didn't just refuse to move in a meeting. He publicly, on his way in, was saying, I am not going, which is quite kind of a public, you know, defying Theresa May. And on the equalities brief, if Greening was going to be fired or moved and lose that brief, the fact it took them, what, two days to, to hand it on, 
it showed how an afterthought it was. It showed how I didn't really think about it. It went to Amber Rudd eventually. And it just, you know, in terms of making the cabinet look like the country, if you're a woman or you're gay or you're disabled or minority, you kind of were told, yeah, well, we'll get to that bit. We'll get to that bit, but we don't really care. Should we send Hunt into the Brexit negotiations? Because <laughs> he's done a really good job. Of, I'm not moving. I'm not anyone not moving. You're going to give me an expanded department. And the reason I went, oh, okay. Hunt, Arlene Foster. Yeah. I think we should send these people in, right? Surely. But it's curious, isn't it? I mean, if you're, if you're, if everything had gone to plan, then you would have ended up with Greg Clark as health secretary right now. If Ooh, everything had gone oh, to plan, just, 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 now, just think about that for the excitement about that now, for a second. Mr. All right, Ball. he would, he, he would sort of draw out some of the poison that Jeremy Hunt has sort of uh, seems to have unleashed when it comes to the way the NHS staff think of him. And there's no question. Hunt is toxic and will probably always be toxic with the NHS staff, no matter how much money he eventually gets for the NHS. But just imagine if that had panned out. You would have had Greg Clark, who's, who's I think he would admit himself, is not the best sort of headline-grabbing communicator. Um, you didn't read the business, the, 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 the <laughs> report. The, the, the industrial strategy. The oh, no, God, no. I tried to read that. And, and yeah, you, you may have had Justin Greeny at Welfare, which might have worked. But the very idea that as a backup plan, you could have Estimate yeah. Vey. Again, it just <laughs> shows She's you... She's waiting outside the door. Get any jobs yet, Theresa? Oh, DWP. I'd love DWP. It's, I'd love it. It's just so strange. Moving David Gork, from, for a start, from a department yeah. that he really, really is getting a grip on was very bizarre. It's, it's fundamental mistakes like that. When number 10 say, oh, you guys are always carping about everything we do. The big picture is, you know, the Brexit mission is unchanged. The top positions haven't changed. These are the sort of domestic changes that were necessary they they fail to grasp that actually this is about politics as much as policy and if you're with the estimate vague thing if moving that shows perhaps they were thinking about getting rid of green out of edu- uh, greening out of education and putting it in to stick her in dwp as if that's not a really important brief with a massive kind of if not crisis extremely toxic situation surely the focus should have actually been on who went there mattered a lot more i think than perhaps the, the education and women and equalities right why why not make that as labor have done a, a hmm. full cabinet post it's got its own select to, committee exactly. it's, it's crazy. its own select committee um you know why do, theresa may surely should have sat down and thought right if i really do want to change the images of government sexual harassment in westminster but not just westminster in the workplace in britain and in the western world has been transformed in the last year why don't i grip this issue because she would have appointed philip davis that's a fair point rather than giving it to greening nicholas so like we love you but don't forget the people who, who weren't rewarded in the reshuffle God, were rewarded. people like tom tuggenhat um and johnny mercer and dominic Raab. what have they got got in common possible leadership contenders I would love to see Tuggenhart and Boris around the cabinet table together <laughs> given also, their spats I've um, was speaking to some Tory MPs this week he was saying why would you want a job now like if you're on the first rung you know why would you want to be painted with this this failing administration which has a sense of decay around it well surely you want to stay as a chair of a select committee right you want to stay as a free willing backbench who can campaign and make a name for themselves you don't want to be become minister of paper clips and unless you're Alan Mack who really does but. the country example to that though is, is Tim Farron of course who steadfastly refused to join any coalition government and look what happened to him oh I'm not doing Tim Farron because uh, I mean he's locked in the room somewhere arguing himself about gay sex I mean no one's Maybe thought more about gay minister. sex than okay. Tim Farron recently right the guy's obsessed with it 
Yeah. Any comment? No? Just no. the leave <laughs> <laughs> Just he keeps going on about gay sex. I'm Dude, just praying that you stop talking about it. I will stop talking about gay sex, but I just think that he needs to stop it as well. <laughs> Get him and Livingston on the show together, just getting hit in the gay sex. <laughs> anyway, one of the things that did happen in the reshuffle was at Cabinet, the number of private school educated people uh, increased. Uh, from her previous cabinet, and that leads nicely to this week's quiz, which is oh. uh, tie in a crest or best of the rest. Ooh. So I want to give you a name, and I want you to tell me whether they were independently educated, tie in a crest, uh, or whether they went to good old-fashioned state schools like the rest of us oiks. But state school includes grammars, does state it? State school does include grammars. All right, okay. That's a wonderful uh, word. Best, best of the rest. Yeah. So let's start, shall we? Greg Clark, tie in a crest or best of the rest? Best of the rest. He went to state school, I'm pretty sure. Okay. Uh, yes, I think Paul's right. I'm going to agree with Paul because yeah. he's really confident about it. He went to a comprehensive school. Uh, Mr. David Gork. Ditto. He went to Ipswich High, I think it was called. I think he went to Ipswich High. So <laughs> I'm going <laughs> to just... This is unfair. Uh, David Gork actually went to a grammar school. He went to Northgate High School. Yeah, but it's a state school. <laughs> so state school. Uh, uh, Karen Bradley. Uh, I'm going to say private just because you haven't had a private one yet. Mm. 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 I don't mm. really know. The Northern Ireland Secretary. I'm saying state school. Oh. When you look at Karen Bradley, what do you think? State school. Do you school. think Tyler Crest or Best of the Rest? I think I feel sorry for her having moved from a really <laughs> fun job to Northern <laughs> That's Ireland. That's a fair point. Oh, that was, that was Kate Frost, by the way. Not me. Just want that on the record. Yeah. Uh, she went to a comprehensive school. You're right. Uh, Esther McVeigh. Not sure. She might have gone to school. I think she might have gone to a fee-paying <laughs> fee-paying school. There I've got a suspicion she did. There's a lot of very good, but not private schools in in Merseyside. So I'm gonna say state. Ned, I'm gonna say state as well. No, she went to a private school, Belvedere School. Do you know it, Kate? I do. Yeah, it is posh. Yeah, good, yeah. It's good. Uh, Mr. Michael Gove. He went to a private school in, in Scotland, of all places, where you, there aren't many. Um, I think somewhere in Aberdeen, was it? Uh, he one did. of those academies. He went to Robert Gordon's College in Aberdeen on a scholarship, I believe. Uh, Caroline Noakes, the new Minister for Immigration. She, surely. She's definitely, in a pony club. Yeah, must be private school. Definitely oh, yeah, private. Yeah. 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 Uh, and finally, the new Tory chairman, Mr Brandon Lewis. That's a good one. Oh, yeah. I think he would went you, to state school. Would you buy a used car with Brandon Lewis? I think he went to state school, but I'm not sure. I think state. I'll say state. No, independent. Oh. <laughs> it's a private school. Right, Forest right. school in Walthamstow. Right, right. I thought so we were wrong. So there we are. Enjoy that. Resign. Yeah, that's all right. That's right. Yeah, it wasn't a nice exciting quiz. Anyway, uh, let's turn now to the NHS. Uh, on Thursday, it was revealed that A&E waiting times in England have reached the worst level on record. As hospital bosses warn the NHS, it's at a watershed moment. Just 85.1% of A&E patients were seen within four hours in December 2017, falling significantly short of the NHS target of 95%. And this means that 300,000 patients waited too long for care. In December 2016, 86.2% of A&E patients were seen in time, meaning the success rate has fallen by 1.1%. In 12 months, levels have only dipped so low once before since monthly reporting on the target was introduced in 2010. Here's Jeremy Corbyn uh, bringing up the issue in PMQs. The health secretary during his occupation of her office to keep his job said he won't abandon the ship. Isn't that an admission that under his captaincy, 
the ship is indeed sinking. We are now joined by uh, Jasmine Gray, who's a reporter here at HuffPost, uh, who has been talking to some uh, A&E frontline staff. Uh, give us a sense of what the morale is at the moment. Are they, are they, do they feel that it's, a, it's more people coming in? Do they feel that it's a resource issue? What's the sense you're getting? Yes, yeah, so Catherine Snowden and I have been speaking to people this week. And yeah, there's, there's a combination of things, I think, in terms of there's more people coming in. It's winter, there's flu, there's things like that. But also just resources are so stretched. So doctors have been telling us that they're working long shifts without breaks. They're literally at the point of tears, some of them. Um, so one doctor told Catherine that um, an elderly woman was having, I mean, heart, like chest pains, um, waited a few hours in, in A&E to see treatment. And then when she saw a doctor, she was crying because she was so worried that she was taking up doctor's time. Like if patients can see it's that bad. Um, others were saying, I spoke to a mental health nurse who was saying that... Um, Doctors and nurses are feeling the pressure so much that they're turning to the mental health teams in their hospitals for support during shifts. They're that close to kind of, they're that on the edge. But um, yeah, I think it's quite bad at the moment from the sounds of it. Um, uh, Did they put forward any kind of solutions? Did they say, you know, we just need more money, we need more resources, we need more staff? Was there any sense there? Was it just a general sense of kind of, we don't know what we need? I think it's all of the above, really. It's all everything, Um, right? Yeah, so some of the people I was speaking to were saying getting rid of the nursing bursary is a massive thing because they're short staff, but people aren't going into it. Um, they were saying care in the community. If it's not if it's not there, then you have to go to A&E. They're kind of saying that A&E's become a drop-in centre, a GP clinic. Homeless people are going there because they've got nowhere to go. It's just kind of one thing after the other, and that seems to be the, the centre of the problem. Do we, think, do we think the government has a true sense of what's going on? I mean, we talk, they keep saying they're putting record funding into the NHS, which they are, but it's not the, the amount of money which NHS is calling for. Yeah. So they're, they're clinging to that where we're putting more money than ever, but it's not... It, it, it's basically, it's, it's so misleading. I mean, the government should hold their hands up and say, yeah, we put more money in, but it's not enough. Yeah, we're training more people, but it's not enough. And Jeremy Hunt is beginning to say that, and that's why he's having this record expansion of training places, but it does ultimately come down to money, and that's why he's saying, actually, uh, he's giving a challenge this week to Prime Minister, yet another one having dug in in the reshuffle, saying we need 10-year funding plans, not not five-year funding plans, because it takes seven years to train a doctor. So have you got five five-year funding program, that just doesn't make sense. So to, to secure the long-term increase in staffing, and ultimately a lot of this comes down to staffing, then that's the only way you're going to do it. And that's why I think the government really missed the trick in the reshuffle. Why, if you're going to remove Jeremy Hunt, why not put someone like Anne Milton there, a former nurse? We're talking about nurses. It's about time maybe the government should say, look, it's not all about doctors. Nurses, well, there are many more nurses and doctors in the NHS. They're really valuable. They're not well um, paid. And we should be doing something about their training, whether it's the nurse's bursary, an easy political hit, bring that back. They could have easily done it with a former nurse as a new health secretary. If you want to transform your image overnight, that would have been a simple thing to do, but they didn't do it. They did get rid of uh, Philip Dunn as a health minister, though, after um, (laughs) in health questions when he stood in for... Oh, no, it was in response to an urgent question. Because Jeremy Hunt wasn't around. Because Jeremy Hunt was in number 10, um, arguing for his future. He stepped in and uh, in response to... Uh, Tracy Brabin, a Labour MP, saying that people were lying on the floor in hospital corridors in her constituency. Um, He said, if there's no beds, most hospitals have chairs to sit in. So that's good. uh, Yeah, he wasn't long for this world after that, was he? No. I don't know whether he was planning to go anyway, but uh, (laughs) certainly (laughs) sealed his fate, didn't he? It just brings us back to how politically savvy is the government. And, you know, 
a lot of people who voted for Brexit were genuinely convinced that, you know, there would be 350 million a quid a week extra for the NHS. And I'm, well, the for the life of me... themselves, they've only put out TV adverts showing this is the NHS in the EU and it was what it is now. This is the NHS out of the EU and it was, you know, everyone had their own hospital in their yeah, back garden. Yeah, but I just, for the life of me, don't understand why either Labour or the Tories can't grasp that nettle and say, yeah, one of the dividends of Brexit will we will put more money in the NHS. And why don't they tie the two together and you get a double whammy. You can try and satisfy the Leave voters and you can satisfy all the people who are worried about the state of the NHS. I, I do not understand why they haven't pitched it like that. I just It's baffling, particularly given that on, on the issue of, you know, the number of EU workers that the NHS relies on and worries that they're going to go. One answer to some of the Leave voters is, as Lisa Nandy, Labour MP, has pointed out before, you know, some of her Leave voters saying, yeah, everyone goes on about the NHS having EU staff. Why can't they have British staff? And why and she talked to a, a, a woman on the doorstep who was desperate to become a nurse, can't become a nurse now because there's no nursing bursary. And that's a, a you know a white working class voter in a Labour constituency who's voting leave, who, who both parties could actually appeal to. Paul talked about there the fact that there's five year funding plans, takes seven years to train a doctor, all that kind of stuff. And it shows this is a long term problem. Ned, do you think there's a sense that there's going to be cross-party work on this we hear these calls for royal commission we hear you know Liz Kendall Norman Lamb want to work together but is there I mean no. but, but Labour have this this is Labour's big yeah, I, electoral thing isn't it there's, right there's no re- if I was Labour why would you want to do politically any cross-party work because you you know it's great for you politically so you don't want to give that up as a as a kind of a thing to hit the toys with would you so I don't see much chance of a cross-party work on it at all really and Justin, where do you think this goes next? Is it is there a sense of anything building? I know we have we had protests about the pay cap before in Parliament. Uh, that's a point that was talked about. Um, is there any other sense that people are, are going to take any kind of action against this, or do you think people are just going to try and muddle through? Um, I mean, none of the people I spoke to were talking particularly about kind of protests or things like that. I think there's just an ingrained sense of just we've got to get through it. It's the patients that are important. Um, yeah, they were just kind of all the people I spoke to were just going to like, extreme lengths at like great personal cost. Um, so that yeah, that seems to be. And it's the not way sustainable, it's is it? Because at one point, at some point, people will say, "I can't do this anymore." And walk away. No, exactly. And a lot of the doctors and nurses we were talking to were saying that people are going to Australia because it's better working there or leaving the profession overall. Um, and I spoke to one nurse who said, "If someone asked me now, should I go into nursing?" She would tell them, "Don't." So. Well, that's pretty. Uh Really depressing, isn't it? Well, thanks very much. That has been much appreciated. Moving on now, and the Prime Minister's judgment has been called into question over the appointment of journalist Toby Young to the Office for Students. There was uproar from many after Young's appointment, giving his public comments about MPs' breasts, actresses' breasts, having anal sex with a colleague, the ghastly need for wheelchair ramps, dressing as a woman to try and kiss hardcore dykes. I mean, I won't go on, but you can understand where I'm going with this. Um, on Sunday, May defended his appointment, saying Young had carried out exceedingly good work in relation to free schools. MPs quizzed then-Universities Minister Joe Johnson in the Commons on Monday about the appointment. Here's Tory MP Rob Halfon, who is disabled, talking about his objection to Young's appointment. And I'm not talking about the things that have been he's done on Twitter. What I'm more concerned about is some quite dark articles where he talks about the disabled, where he talks about working classes, and much more significantly in 2015, and I have the article here, on, on what he calls progressive eugenics. Now, I find this incredibly dark and very dangerous stuff. 
And with the pressure growing, Young eventually quit the role earlier this week. But what does this tell us about the PM's judgment? I mean, she went in to bat for him on Sunday. She claimed I didn't know anything about this stuff. But she didn't sort of say, if I had known, I wouldn't have appointed him. Yeah, and I'm kind of annoyed at the the backlash against the backlash, as it were. So people who are still defending Toby Young, saying that it's kind of a Twitter mob that's ousted him. Now, Toby Young, as a kind of controversial journalist and writer over many years, has written lots of controversial things. That's not a surprise. If you appoint him to position, you'd be prepared to defend that. Other people didn't like what he said, said he's not suited, That as they're allowed to do. So it's not like he got kind of run out of town. It's weird that what, they appointed without knowing the things he said. You know, if you think that's fine, stand by exactly. it. It wasn't sort of some un, always being unfairly treated. You know, it wasn't a. It's and bizarre. then he, I like the fact that he then moaned about. He said, "I've created this online persona, and now I've come to be defined by it." Well, yeah, well, yeah. And all people <laughs> would, all people were doing was just reading out things he had written down in public. So I don't see, you know. But it's, what does this tell us about about the government? About the fact that they were so defensive of him, Joe Johnson in the house saying, "Look at the fantastic work that he's done," and it wasn't. They didn't seem to be. It's about tinnied. Well, it's just a terrible call all round, isn't it? And then, I mean, Toby Young essentially is a man showing off. That That is what he is. And of all the people I could have picked... A man picked, child showing off. Yeah, but yeah. All the, of all the people I could have picked for that, why would you Why would you choose to, to make that headache for yourself? It's not worth it. Why, how is it worth it? I don't understand. Well, it just shows, there's a, there's, again, the real gaps in the way government competence works right now. You know, where was the due diligence in saying, hold on a tick, should we, when you're going through the process of appointing someone, has anyone done a quick Google search of what he said in the past? Um, and that's why the eugenics would have easily been picked up. But the, you know, the, it, it does worry you, actually, that the people in that process who were appointing him, they felt at the time they couldn't speak out, apparently, the people on the Office for Students, the, the fellow board members, because it would be seen as sort of unseemly. And it took Rob Halfon, it turns out, that key intervention there was what swung it, apparently. That's what persuaded people in government to say, hold on a tick. This is... We, we can... We can't excuse the sexism, but actually, in a way, you can sort of say separate from education. But if you're talking about eugenics, you're talking about, you know, working class people and how to get a different education and IQ and all that. That's directly linked to education. And therefore, this is going to undermine the entire reputation of the body. And don't forget, I think, actually, there's, there's you know, there's other questions to be asked. It, it's because not just does Toby Young have a friendship with uh, Boris Johnson, who defended him online, um, but he also has a, a you know a close relationship with Michael Gove, who defended him online. And Michael Gove, don't forget, his very own advisor Dominic Cummings wrote a paper while Gove was at the Department for Education, and it was a private essay, and it was addressing the whole idea of IQ and inheritability, and whether or not you can inherit. Uh, intelligence and should we look more at the research on this now it was in 2013 it got buried at the time i mean there's a bit of a flurry around it but don't forget there are some people around boris around gove who really think this stuff is worth looking at now for most people in the country the idea of linking intelligence or even thinking that somehow you should talk about intelligence and 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 family background and link it to education is going way too far and I Boris think give a speech about the shaking the cornflake box and some things rise to the surface and they're always going to. And it was well, that's that what's weird about it. You would have thought these are, in theory, meritocrats. But it brings you back actually to an important point about people like Gove and, and often the discussion about education. It's as if somehow it's all about rescuing the poor, bright kids and giving them a chance. And it's all very little is about 
what about those kids who don't have high IQ, who aren't academic? How, what sense of worth have they got? What future have they got in the education system? Are we doing apprenticeships? Are we doing proper vocational training? How are you helping them? And the focus is all on these bright kids. And Toby Young's whole thesis was we want the working classes to have brighter kids and we can somehow screen for the, the low IQ. Now, surely the debate should be having a low IQ doesn't make you worthless. And there was also, it seems like a little bit um, with the Toby Young appointment, they said, you know, he's done a lot, done a lot of work in free schools. Um, not you know, let's not talk about the stuff he said online in the columns but it almost felt like it was that was part of it as well this kind of idea from some on the right there's a culture war going on of kind of liberal snowflakes who are too sensitive to just jokes online but actually that's just coming from basically kind of rich white men who are a bit upset that they're no longer having to be able to say exactly what they want and get away with it and I think almost the fact he was controversial was a deliberate decision to show that we're not backing down in this war against all you kind of people who can't handle you know bigotry i remember uh toby young on question time in about 2003 when he was pro eu expansion and he talked about the reason why people would like it was because when these eastern european women come over here to britain my god you will be glad that they did and i reminded him of this at a tory conference when i saw him a couple of years ago and he was very very embarrassed about it he was just like, oh, I don't need really, a clip of that. And I, you know, it's like just sticks in your mind. Yeah. And it was just that. So, yeah, so he's been doing this. He, he, he's a contrarian, right? He mm. will go and say whatever he wants sure. to try and be provocative. And it's it's come back to... Uh, but there, but there, is, there was a really interesting exchange um, with Andrew Neil and Debbie Abrahams on uh, the Daily Pontus when it talked about this. When he when National read out the stuff that Jared O'Mara had said, calling women bitches and, and slags and all that kind of stuff. And John McDonnell saying that estimate they should be lynched. So, double standards? Should they, you know, should should the Labour MPs be held up to the same standards? Toby Young, should they be hauled over the calls for their comments in the past? Or have they been? What I mean, what, what do we think about that? Yeah, no, I think it is a bit of double standards. Angela Rayner said she was happy to sit alongside Jared O'Mara on, on the Labour benches after his frankly unacceptable and horrible comments were unearthed. So, I think that is fair to say. I mean, what's going to happen with that as well? Has everyone forgotten that Jared O'Mara is... Uh, I think he's forgotten he's an MP. He's not yeah. turned up for work for about... Yeah. I think his, his, uh, the, the inquiry will be coming in, in the next few uh, weeks, I suspect. But what about the, the estimate of stuff? Because, you know, yeah, yes, she's a controversial figure, I mean, right? But what's, she's getting death threats. What was extraordinary about after PMQs was we have a traditional huddle with the, with the number 10 press team and then with the Labour press team. And the Labour press team were defending... John McDonnell's remarks that Esther McVeigh was a, quote, stain on humanity because of her tenure at the DWP. Now, you had Emily Thornbury, again, refused to condemn those remarks. And, yeah, McDonnell claims it was only quoting a constituent of McVeigh's when he once said, um, you know, lynch the bitch. Well, you know, um, Enoch Powell's saying that he was know, only quoting people and it was a blood speech, so, you know. You and I, what's strange about all of that is that Jeremy Corbyn himself repeatedly says he absolutely loathes personal abuse. Yeah. And you would have thought this is one occasion where he could actually say, look, I condemn what John had said, John McDonnell said, he shouldn't have quoted that, and he should never have said someone is a stay on humanity. And if, if you'd had that, then actually it would have been a bit more credible from Jeremy Corbyn. But isn't the problem, just finally with this, the problem with the left is that I see people walking around with T-shirts with a Nye Bevan quote from 1948, I think, saying that Tories are lower than vermin. And, and, they, and it's, oh, let's put it on a T-shirt, isn't it funny? Well, I just think it's not, right? Surely that's not how politics should be conducted. And, 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 but that seems, it seems to get a slightly free pass on the left because you're, you're having to go at the Tories. Or am I, am I wrong about that? There's a possibility. 
No, what, apparently you being not. Wrong? <laughs> you being wrong? Me being wrong? I know. That's I know, Paul. Surely not. I know. I don't think so. No, I think the important point is you can you can criticize McVeigh's record, but you should not make it personal. You shouldn't say she's as people did on Twitter. You know, you're evil personified. Yeah. And I think that you know that the whole surely the lesson we've learned over the last few years is actually we need to dial all that down yeah. and focus on you know the real issue. Okay. And just finally, before we go, uh, in case you missed it, this week brought to us by Mr. Paul War. You should be sitting there. Hello, Mr. Paul. Hello. Uh, in case you missed it, this week is about how we're going to raise council tax on people who earn lots of money. This Seems like a good idea to me. But this on. is Labour's shadow front bencher, Chris Williamson, long-time friend of Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, I think friend plays it down. He's obsessed with the guy. <laughs> who um, I interviewed, and he mentioned his great new idea, which is a differential progressive council tax and this is the idea that you should defend local councils from Tory cuts um, by jacking up the council tax for the wealthier homes in the band D and above right up to band H and freezing them for people in you know lower value homes and in the process he says at a stroke he's done the numbers him and his team you would cancel all local council cuts as well as freezing um, council tax for those in the lower brackets. He thinks it's a no-brainer. He accepts that actually it'd be politically controversial, and that you know, he, as he said to me, the Daily Mail, Daily Telegraph will come after me um, because you know they won't like this idea. But he thinks it could be won in a referendum locally. The f- funnily enough, no lab- local Labour group has actually adopted it. Um, it's being pushed in Bristol, but Marvin Rees, the mayor there, is not very pleased about the idea, even though the local Momentum group are in favour of it. Uh, and, you know, at the end of the day, as Williamson said to me, it's not official party policy. And don't forget, it's Andrew Gwynn, not Chris Williamson, who's in charge of local government policy. <laughs> I was about to ask why Williamson was pushing this. Isn't he Shadow Fire Services Minister? He is. <laughs> I mean, which is, you know, fair enough. <laughs> he is. I mean, you know, he says, you know... It's a good indication into, into the way that that strand of the party is yeah. thinking and the, and the things they're thinking Absolutely. about. Absolutely. And, you know, don't forget that some of these ideas, they might be dismissed early on, but they may well find themselves filtering through his policy. And everyone mocked Williamson for his kind of pro-Corbyn credentials before the election, Absolutely. saying that Corbyn would do well, saying that he'd win massively, and he was right. Yeah, I'm not sure that... Labour Council candidate is going to thank him much for it ahead of May. <laughs> well, already the Tory party, already the Tory party have produced a leaflet off the back of our interview, which has you know Corbyn's secret plan to double your council tax. Great, is that alongside mm. Angela Rayner's? Yeah, our economic plan is shit or bust. Yeah, <laughs> I mean that's <laughs> a brilliant line. Isn't one it? thing on that, like Theresa May brought it up in PMQs, had to apologise, but also I like the fact she brought up a quote she then couldn't use in <laughs> Parliament she because she didn't want to say shit. the word shit. So if you're going to bring a quote up, she's against Corbyn, pick one you can actually say. She was very coy about it, wasn't it? The yeah. way she phrased it line, was hilarious. I love it as journalists when you're interviewing someone and they say something like that and you try your hardest not to react. You <laughs> don't want them to realise that they've just dropped the ball. So you go, oh yeah, fair enough. Well, we should probably be going yeah. then. Yeah. Oh, do you want another 20 minutes? No, that's so, fine. I've got everything I need. Any more questions? Absolutely, Absolutely not. No more questions. That's great. But I think actually the shit or bus quote, the reason she got away with that is because actually I don't think if you looked at the words, it was that damaging because it was just a sort of frank, sort of off the cuff, real person type quote. What was more yeah, damaging? Put on leaflets, though. But m- what was more damaging ultimately, I thought, was her tweet on Monday saying solidarity with the rail strikers. Because if one day Angela Rayner does indeed become Labour leader, that quote will be thrown back at her time and time and time again. Whenever there's a rail strike, you can bet your bottom dollar. And the people who use the services won't like that very much, will they, Ned? 
No. No, thank you. Right, thanks for listening, everyone. Uh, I'm glad you enjoyed that. And next week we have a special report of uh, <laughs> of um, of Iceland. I went there on my holidays. Not I the supermarket. People. No, not the Ooh. supermarket. <laughs> oh, there is an Iceland supermarket in Iceland. Is there? It blew my time I don't mind. believe oh. you. Seriously, by the airport. I want photographic evidence. I'm not going to go back. It was very expensive. But yeah, we got a special report on uh, what life is like inside an EFTA country. Ooh. Did you do an EFTA report on your honeymoon? Yeah. I oh bet that was great fun for your wife. Yeah, yeah. I bet Ali's yeah. delighted. <laughs> wow. Anyway, see you next week. Cheers. <laughs>